Great. Well, once again, thank you everybody for joining us today. Uh, the end of the first quarter is, is not, not too long ago and we're glad to have you here for this. Uh, I guess it's our spring quarterly tea. Um, it's been a, a good start to the year and we're, we're glad to be presenting today. It's a, it's a small group so far and, uh, one of the nice things about having a smaller group is we'd love to have your interaction as possible. So any questions you may have, feel free to either raise a hand in Zoom. You can unmute and interrupt us any chance you get. Uh, if you feel so so confident to do so, we, we welcome your questions. And if you are on the Shire side and you'd like to ask a question, feel free to email us at info at raccoongroup.com, or you can reach out to any of the team members here with any questions you might have. Uh, so with that, I think uh, we'll go ahead and, and get everything rolling here, and, and thanks again for joining us. Is there a place you'd like to kick off, Rob? Well, um, people can also just use the chat function. No. No. Uh, no. <laughs> no. Wrong. Oh well. Sorry. <laughs> Good. Anyway, um, is there anyone who'd like to to start off with a topic that that they'd like to cover? Um, uh, um, we since we just did one this morning, uh, our our first topic was. Um, uh, what was it? We spoke on, we spoke on the debt ceiling was the first topic, uh, this morning. We're happy to start there, but also if there's anybody eager to start us off with a question, we can, we can start anywhere else as well. But maybe that's a, let's start there and that's probably a good place to, uh, to get us going. Good. So, um, everyone is aware that there's a lot of political posturing around the, upcoming uh, date when the government is supposed to run out of money and there's a concern that there'll be a uh, a default on the U.S. debt, which would be a very big deal. Um, the default is not an option. It will not happen. Um, the, the government, depending on how they did yesterday with their ticket sales at, at, on tax day, um, has, uh, has enough money to pay its bills, uh, its, its mandatory bills. That is to say, uh, to pay social security, to pay interest on the debt, and to, to pay all of its legal obligations. What would happen in the event that there's no, um, political agreement to raise the debt ceiling would be that the uh, uh some of the functions provided by the government that we we all um are used to uh might be curtailed or shut down temporarily if you remember uh when it happened before they closed uh some of the parks and uh other such thing um so it's not like the country is in danger of falling off of a cliff number 1 um whether the uh whether the deficit limit should be raised or not or whether congress has the ability to uh curtail spending is a a different topic um uh but uh and and a, a worthy one to talk about especially as regards to 
uh, Social Security and the, and the prognosis for Social Security. But in the immediate um, uh, 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 next couple of months, what we're likely to just see are uh, people, politicians trying to use this kind of um, supposed crisis to to make uh, score political points. Kyle, do you yep. want to add to that? Yeah, I think what's what's interesting right now is obviously we have a we have a split Congress, and so we already have uh, a general proposal that's being put forth by the Speaker, which is if if he can even find enough will within the House to move that forward, whether or not they would be able to get it through there is a question. But then obviously once it arrives at the Senate, it's pretty much dead on arrival because they they're unlikely to kind of accept the provisions which are being put forth currently. Uh, I think that it's a pretty, you know, it's, it's a pretty hot button item right now. And that, you know, really the all likelihood does point to them making a deal in time. Uh, but I think that certainly if they're unable to come to a deal, it'd be a negative for the market. Overall, the market would have a negative reaction, but uh, there's nothing that we see right now that kind of indicates that they're going to be actually unable to come to a deal. Uh, there's sort of two key points in time, uh, depending on, as Rob mentioned, the ticket sales, the tax collections, which occurred yesterday. Um, there's a, a date in July, June or July, and then there's sort of a later date, which they're estimating to be the actual date, which would occur in August. Um, and August is the kind of the big time where we see the last chance for them to make a deal on the debt ceiling. Uh, right now, proposals push us into next year, and that's kind of been the, the model now is constantly moving it forward inch by inch rather than really dealing with it in the long term. So, um, yeah, I think the uh, another question that came up was about the bank banking failures of late. Um, there are quite a bit of consternation about uh, whether depositors were going to be made whole, whether people needed to worry about even Charles Schwab, uh, which was in the news a fair amount regarding their bond portfolio. Um, one of the things that had happened, which was totally predictable when, when the Fed raised interest rates so much throughout 2022 was that anyone who bought long-term bonds, 10 years or 20 years or 30-year bonds, would see the market value on paper of their bonds decline, uh, their older bonds at the lower interest rates. So um, uh, banking has its own rules and and, uh, 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 political pressures. now that we have the uh, uh, internet and people can move their money, uh, you know, in a matter of minutes, as opposed to having to wait online outside of a, a physical bank, uh, people in California are especially quick to pull triggers, uh, metaphorically speaking. Um, and so, uh, when when the Silicon Valley Bank and uh, and the the other one lost deposits. Uh, and they had to take their bond portfolios and, uh, and value them. There, there were these crises and the banks had to be taken over by other banks. What was most interesting to us, um, 
And one of the reasons that we told people not to be concerned about it was that the FDIC and the Federal Reserve and everyone was very much on board with protecting all depositors, no matter what amounts of money they had in the bank, essentially making the $250,000 limit irrelevant um, because the last thing that they wanted was any kind of crisis or people uh, uh, losing faith in small and, and uh, regional banks and thereby creating even a bigger problem. And that really was quite successful. Um, they found buyers for the for, for the couple of banks that had uh, deposit flight. And um, is everything back to normal, Kyle? Or? Uh, in large part, one, one of the interesting things that happened is when the banking crisis happened, they basically everyone expected the Federal Reserve to slow down on their rate increases and also expected an eventual pullback in rates from the Fed. And with that, the the actual interest rates on on the long bonds that were owned went down. And by the function of those those yields going down, it essentially shored up many of the balance sheets for the banks just by the movement. And so we saw the two year bond, uh, two year Treasury bill go down, go from five percent to around four point two percent in one day which is a, a pretty historic move when we look at how quickly it moved down. And similarly, we saw weakness in the in the 10-year Treasury as well. And so just by those price movements occurring, it helped out a lot of banks. So the panic almost helped shore up a lot of the balance sheets on the banks just by the prices moving upward in their bonds. Um, so but seeing a 15% move in, in treasuries in one day is pretty significant. And, and that proves the adage, it's better to be lucky than smart. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's certainly the, the banks that had a little bit more leeway, they benefited greatly by the collapse of a couple others. It's, they let their, their friends take the fall for them, I suppose. Exactly. Um. So the question that is often asked is what 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 does what happens next with interest rates? Uh, interest rates, as everyone's probably aware, uh, uh, drives the stock market one way or the other. Um, it drives the level of interest payments that the government has to pay on its debt, um, and interest rates are of course intimately tied to inflation or inflationary expectations. That, of course, was the reason why the Fed raised rates so much in 2022, which uh, put the uh, put the kibosh to the stock market rally. And um, uh, now, uh, Kyle, where do you think we're going with, with interest rates? Yeah, I mean, right now, the kind of, they, there are actually bets. You can actually make bets on the movements of interest rates that the Fed is going to make. But right now, the kind of general consensus is that there'll be at least another uh, quarter percentage increase at kind of at their next meeting. And that after that, we'll have a real good indication of whether or not they plan on continuing 
upward with it. Uh, one of the things we talked about earlier today was just about the continued kind of wage growth in the country and the persistence of inflation and that there's, you know, unemployment remains really low at three and a half percent. There's a lot of places where the economy remains really strong. And then so there, there's certainly the possibility that the Fed continues to increase rates beyond the quarter percent that we're expected to see at the next meeting. So that likely will put some kind of cap on major upward moves, would you, would you say, Kyle, in the stock market? Uh, earnings season is coming up. Um, so there's quite a divergence in earnings among banks and, and, and other corporations. Uh, when, when Kyle said that in the unemployment is at a historic low, you may also have been reading about the large tech companies laying off uh, a lot of people, especially in California, where the where the hiring boom was, you know, strongest. Um, uh, so uh, the the general view is that small and mid-sized businesses are driving the employment market. That that's where the real demand is for people. That wage growth, I guess, the numbers. Uh, the numbers came out this morning. And so through the first quarter, we saw wage growth at 6.3%. So and, and inflation is in the fives. And so you had wage growth above inflation for the first time in, in uh, many years. Right. And so from the point of view of people earning wages, that, that might sound good. I read something that said that over the last two years, uh, even with wage growth, that inflation has decrease the purchasing power of the average wage earner by something like 15%. That that infl- inf- inflation has eroded away um, uh, much of the gains that, uh, that, that working people have. Yeah, we also had a very extended period with low to no wage growth. And even during those times when inflation was low, people's purchasing power was consistently declining in kind of those key wage growth categories because because they weren't even keeping pace with a 2% inflation. And so this is the first point in time when they've actually started to catch up. The, the uh, employment levels and wages are one of the main benchmarks that the Federal Reserve uses to gauge whether they're making progress on their stated target of 2% inflation. And so you can see at 5 or 6%, they're, they're not quite there yet. Um, the, the sort of common view is that the Fed was very slow, almost totally 180 degrees wrong in recognizing that the expansionary uh, Policies of creating money, especially during the pandemic, would end up being inflationary. Um, and that, uh, of course, the first view of, of uh, the chairman was that it was transitory inflation. So I'm sure he regrets using those words at this point. Very much so. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it certainly has proved to be longer lasting than than they had expected. There, you know, early 
early on when we started to see inflation, a lot of it was uh, pandemic related. We just said, oh, people are going to go back to work. We're going to see supply chains reopen and all the prices are going to come back down. And what we've seen since then is that turned out to not be the case where we really infused too much money into the system and we're still trying to unwind the money supply. We've had sort of an anti-globalization movement where we produce, we're trying to produce more uh, domestically, which causes further issues on, on inflation. And uh, it's really proved to be a lot stickier than anyone had, you know, predicted. Well, not anyone, but the majority of people had predicted. Good. Any um, any comments or questions from the from the floor, so to speak, the virtual floor? We'll give my brother a few minutes to catch up. We can always count on him for some questions later on. So, and and it's always best when he's muted as well. That that, that helps his delivery. So, you should have said the peanut gallery. The peanut gallery. Well, I. Most most of the people on would uh, would understand what I meant by that. Um, <laughs> so um, let's see. Uh, uh, any topics of interest uh, um, that we haven't covered yet? I think the, the the some of the questions this morning were about the you know the the spending defense spending whether the U.S. is capable of. Sort of spending what it needs to to continue on as sort of the global uh, um, global power that we we have come to take take for granted. You know, spending money on defense has its benefits. The the U.S. dollar uh, for all the various announcements about the the movement away from the dollar on part on the part, and certainly Russia and China are trying, and Iran and some of the States that are directly opposed to the U.S. are trying to create alternative currencies uh, uh, to the U.S. dollar, um, unsuccessful for the most part uh, up till now. Um, uh, I, I would just say I, I think while they have a partnership amongst one another, as they attempt to kind of alter the landscape of, you know, the U.S. being the reserve currency. I think that, uh, you know, when we look at it, that I don't know how successful they've actually been while, you know, they, they're transacting with one another. When we look at kind of the, the global perspective, there's been a slight disruption, but really contractually is, is where everything kind of comes back to the U.S. dollar is confidence that you're working with somebody who's going to obey the contract with your currency. And, uh, you know, the U.S. sort of still remains in a stronghold in that position. We're asking sort of general European countries to choose, uh, you know, choose China as the reserve currency is probably, you know, at this point, not all that likely, I would imagine. But, uh, but it certainly creates a lot of noise when China and Russia and Iran partner kind of using the, the Chinese currency as their, as their reserve. Kyle, I, have, I have a question Please. on that. If, you know, the U.S. currency is typically, our U.S. currency is typically, uh, in terms of currencies is considered a safe haven, uh, generally during times of, 
recession and global recession. So does that further sort of slow down any progress they might make? I'm not quite sure I understand. I think I think if there were a recession, right, you're you're going to look at somebody who's in a stronger position. And so it would be certainly dependent on who remains in that dominant sort of credit position at the time of recession. Uh, but I still think that the U.S. would be the, the favorite currency in that in that scenario. Yeah. You know, Please a lot mark. of things. Yeah, thank you. A, a lot that's not widely known is if you actually dig into the numbers, there are literally trillions and trillions of dollars in, 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 in dollar denominated debt around the world that aren't going to go away anytime soon. And these aren't three month, six month, one month, uh, one year loans. These are 10, 15, 20, 30 year uh, dollar denominated debt that a lot of countries are holding. And almost the entire since we've gotten into a global economy over the last 30 to 40 years, so many transactions, as you point out, Kyle, contractually are in dollars. And that's not going to break down very easily. It's going to take a very long time, if it ever happens at all, because after all, if you're dealing with a country like China that has imposed uh, capital controls where money going out of the country is 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 uh, manipulated and managed by the by the People's Bank of China, what guarantee do you have if you want to trade in yuan that you're ever going to be able to get your money out of the country if you choose to do that? So um, it is an interesting facet about a lot of noise uh, about the dollar and the reserve currency status, but I just think it's a lot of smoke and not a lot of fire. Um, but I wanted to ask a question if I could, and, and, and Jeff may be helpful in this regard too, and certainly you will be, Kyle. Um, you know, as we look at what happened with Silicon Valley Bank and looking at the disaggregation of, of how all the banks stand, we have 4,200 banks in the United States. And, you know, other than the top 10 or 12 that were the ones that are able to pull together the $30 billion to put into First Republic Bank, um, a lot of people don't realize that all of those smaller banks have substantial exposure to things like commercial real estate and other areas uh, with a lot of debt that's coming um, due, not just this year, but over the next five years. And in particular, there's a very large amount coming due this year. So is that the next shoe to drop? Is that something that people are overlooking and people are becoming a little bit too Pollyannish and, and rose-colored glasses uh, now that we've kind of apparently skated through uh, what occurred with those three or four um smaller banks and there's a lot of others that are potentially going to be in distress for the, you know, or the remainder of this year. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think the general public sees it getting sort of, um, you know, brushed over a little bit, but I think when we look at the markets and we watch the trading activity in these banks, that it's very real in terms of the stock prices and what they've experienced. So there's several regional banks. Uh, if we were to look at them, um, you know, a lot of them have been priced down simply because of their commercial real estate, right? And because we, we've seen those values drop. We've seen lower tenancy in the buildings, right? And the ability to repay the debt, which has been taken out on that commercial real estate, uh, is significant. And so a lot of them have been priced down in the, in the markets themselves which presents a great risk, right, where the federal government would continually have to be stepping in to protect these banks. But I think there has been some reprieve, you know, when we look at kind of the pullback in bond rates and the potential, you know, the ability for them to start gathering capital 
is something that we've seen greatly, right? And so uh, Silicon Valley Bank or Signature Bank falling early on allowed a lot of these other banks that may have been more distressed to go out and seek capital to raise their reserves or access kind of lines of credit. It's, it's strange talking about a bank needing a real line of credit from other investors, but but it's the case. And so they've had an opportunity to go out, collect additional kind of lines of credit to shore up their reserves if needed. Uh, but I certainly think it's going to pl- place a lot of stress, particularly on on smaller banks or regional banks kind of going forward. Um, we have a question on a different topic, Kyle. Yeah, I saw that question come in, and I think, you know, um, we can talk a little bit about it. I'll just say, so we had a question come in uh, asking about the Russian war on Ukraine lasting. Uh, we can talk a little bit about it, but just so everyone on the call knows, it's a, a great chance to plug some upcoming commentary is, on May 4th, we'll actually be speaking with an expert on Europe and Ukraine. And so we'll have a presentation on this subject specifically with someone who probably knows a lot more than we do. He's a uh, great guest speaker. He's a native of Bulgaria. He's visiting the region only days before our presentation. And so we'd like to give him the chance to give the most insight. And we kind of left it off our agenda a little bit, but uh I don't know if you have any just brief thoughts on Russia and Ukraine, Rob. Well, um, it's a very sad situation, of course. Um, The number of people who are suffering and the Russians and Ukrainians that are um, sort of been drawn in against their will just because of where they are. it's likely to go on for a very long time because neither side is showing any indication that they want to give in ideologically to the other. Um, and um, so that, that was the actual question. The U.S. provides the bulk of financial and military equipment support to Ukraine. Um, uh, the landscape may be changing with Germany and Japan uh, for the first time seeing the need to gear up their defense forces and reactivate their military. Um, it is possible uh, that the NATO countries who have been uh, below below their commitment commitments of 2% of GDP to defense spending, that they will come up to that now that they uh, uh, can see that there is a, a need for uh, uh, an active uh, uh, and, and sort of ready NATO force to be there. Uh, it's uh, Kyle and I were talking the other day about the, the Germans uh, have done an amazing job reducing their energy demand They have like a contest between little towns in Germany to see who can use the least amount. And and Germans are are very uh, effective when they put their mind to to things. So, you know, it doesn't mean they don't have their stupid side of 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 uh, uh, buying natural gas, continuing to buy natural gas from Russia just so they don't have to 
to develop their own energy resources. Yeah, sure. they made they made a choice to shut down their last nuclear plant, which they had ramped back up with concerns over over Russia and natural gas, but then they much prefer to continue getting natural gas than to use nuclear power, as an example. Of buying someone else's natural gas at inflated prices. That that part that that's in direct contrast to the great the great Republic of Texas, uh, next door to New Mexico, who has an abundance of alternative energy and natural gas and black gold oil. This, what would Texas be without its energy? Um, Texas is hell-bent on, on building small natural gas plants to back up their energy grid. I think they did not like being without heat or air conditioning uh, when they had their, their, their power outages, and that will be interesting to see. We, we, we haven't covered that topic about the elect, electric grid and the capacity of the U.S. to provide electricity. Um, uh, but you'll be reading about that perhaps depending on the weather this summer. So I think you, you know, the Ukraine is, is just the, the, I, I don't know what it's like the, it's like the hammerhead. Uh, Russia will, not be able to sustain itself economically um, uh, uh, for years and years, but I think that I, I don't think anyone has the will to settle that dispute. So that's our slightly long-winded answer there. Yes, good. Um, other questions from the group? I have one, please, <clears throat> or two, or two maybe. Um, Excellent. The first one is the debt crisis. I don't know if you discussed that while I was off uh, the meeting or not, but, um, you know, it's it's looming. It's not here yet, I don't think, but uh, it's coming and I see it going down to the wire. And I wonder if if your group has given any thought to how you might trade as it gets closer and closer to doomsday. Yeah, I mean, I think. I mean, we discussed it a little bit at the beginning. Uh, certainly waiting till the last minute is intentional as a political movement, right? Is waiting as long as you can trying to leverage something out of the opposing party uh, is completely intentional. Uh, but I think what we see in terms of trading, it's, it's, you're likely going to see a lot of trade activity leading up to it and you know opportunities are going to be specific to people depending on their risk tolerances but you know i would say that we're going to see larger movements in in certainly what would be considered higher risk categories of the market right and so uh if we're worried about uh a default on debt we're going to see it in the credit markets first, where you're going to see difficulties in the high yield markets, most likely, uh, initially. So you're going to see that disjoint from the higher quality credits earlier on. Um, I think similarly, you know, that creates, you know, less confidence in the stock market and you're going to see more volatility, which, you know, sometimes when there's volatility, there's, there's opportunity just depending on, you know, what sort of, what arises from it. What we, uh, we said we, we, we don't think that it's going to be a doomsday that 
that they will work it out, that that Social Security and the interest on the debt will be paid. There may be some disruption in services. It should be relatively, well, I don't want to say painless or short-lived when it comes to the government. It, you never know. But uh, we will certainly muddle through. And um, because both political parties have taken Social Security and defense spending off the table, that's the bulk of the government spending. And so they're only left with a very narrow range of things to discuss. And, um, you know, the, the future of Social Security is of great interest to, to many of our clients in terms of the funding of that program. I think that probably most people have read that they expect, um, especially in a high inflation, high interest rate environment, they expect the, uh, with high, higher cost of living, uh, increases like people saw this past year, um, they expect that the Social Security to to be depleted and to not totally depleted, but to have to cut benefits in about 10 years and maybe less, depending on on how inflation and the cost of living uh, adjustments happen. So uh, that presents an interesting mathematical problem uh, that only Kyle can solve uh, uh, regarding does it make sense to take your social security and pay tax with the assumption that your social security is going to be cut by 25% in 10 years. And of course, it, it, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an unanswerable question, which is why we like to pose it to Kyle. We can run some simulations to mm-hmm. with probabilities as to whether or not they'll have to cut your social security in 10 years. Uh, Please don't call us to ask for those simulations. But, uh, but no, seriously though, it's, you know, it's certainly a risk, you know, and Rob was asking that question kind of in a joking but non-joking manner is do you, do you take your social security earlier to, uh, to try to maximize the payout if you're worried about pending cuts in the future? Now I think that, uh, you know, I think you're probably a little bit early. I think that the government probably starts working out some of those things, you know, but um, right now it's certainly, you know, if we're looking at it in five years from now, it's certainly more prevalent of a risk versus now, because clearly now there's no political will to make any of those changes. And, and I don't know, they talk about that a little bit like they talk about, you know, global warming, that you can't wait until the crisis is upon you to fix it. Mm-hmm. And that this is the time window now to make the adjustments. Obviously, they can raise the age. They can tax benefits higher. They can, there, there's a lot of adjustments they can make. And if we were French, you know, we'd be out in the streets marching and hitting people with baguettes, but <laughs> we're not French. So we're home, you know, on, on Zoom, but you know, each to their own as yeah so, well it's 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 an it's an opposite problem in France right is that the we're here we're worried about whether or not social security is going to last and what changes need to be made to make it last whereas in France they're worried about 
maintaining it early on and don't necessarily care about whether actuarially the numbers work out, right? They, they prefer to have their benefits now and figure out the actuary problems later. In the U.S., we've, we're trying to think about it now. Well, some of us are thinking about it now. Uh, because we're talking about the actuarial situations that lead to Social Security running out. It's a very sort of different scenario, I think. Anyway, you know, some people thought that Social Security money should be invested in the stock market. And and that didn't happen. So what can we say? Uh, we'll just have to wait and see. Um the political will, as Kyle said, is certainly not there on 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 anyone's part to to address it. So let's see what other topics might be of interest. Did you have a second question, Mr. Raccoon? Yes, I did, Mr. Raccoon. Um, <laughs> and I don't know. Again, maybe you discussed this when I was otherwise occupied. But uh, do you think, uh, given the current situation, the chance of recession is greater, lesser, the same as it was before, or um, or not? <laughs> that question was not asked before, so that's a great question. Yeah. Go ahead, Kyle. I got one good one. <laughs> you know, it, it's it's been it's been fun to watch all the. Uh, recession predictions that have been going on. And, uh, Najoni and I were at a, a conference in about six months ago or so where they were talking about when recession would hit and calling it the most predicted recession ever. And, uh, everyone you listen to continues to say there's going to be a recession. There's going to be a recession. And they keep kind of pointing out into the future into kind of the abyss and saying, oh, it's going to be in six months, but they've been saying it's going to be later this year or or early next year. And it kind of keep, seems to be the constant right now in terms of predictions is that they believe it's coming, but it's just coming later, right? Mm-hmm. No one seems to really understand when it's going to hit. I think that the economy has, you know, we talked a little bit about the low unemployment and wage growth. The economy has proved to be much more resilient than anyone expected. I think that if we were to see, you know, major bank failures, that would certainly be something that pushes us into recession much more quickly. Uh, but, you know, the Federal Reserve continues to raise interest rates and they don't seem to be worried about a recession. Uh, but I, I, I just think that there's many metrics out there that show a really strong economy that are preventing us from hitting recession currently. Now, yeah. go ahead, Rob, please. In, in the U.S., 75% of the economy is consumer spending. Mm-hmm. And um, just think about your own circle of friends and people you know. How many people have delayed or have or have uh, denied making purchases because they're worried about an economic slowdown? How many people have not bought cars, or if they can find them, uh, uh, no matter what the price, almost, there's there's a, a huge uh, uh, reservoir of cash 
uh, in the hands of, of consumers and businesses who have been accumulating money when interest rates were 2%. Uh, it was, um, you know, it just was crazy how much, uh, how easy it was to get money and the asset values and real estate values. People aren't really trading their real estate because of the, the cost of financing now with the new mortgage rates. But people uh, who own assets feel, do not feel fearful. Uh, they might be fearful of the distant future, but not of the immediate future. And so we don't, we, we see people going on vacations. Uh, 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 and so while consumer confidence is high, it will continue to drive the economy and uh, likely keep interest rates and inflation higher than than the Fed would like. So we expect interest rates to, you know, stay at a fairly uh, uh, a level, fairly current level um, for for an extended period of time because of the strength of the economy. Yeah, which with that strength would kind of hold us out of recession for an extended period. Right. So does the stock market go up from here because there's no recession or do we need to see a cut in interest rates, Kyle, to see the stock market? Well, I mean, the stock market to start the year has already gone up. Uh, there's already been a, uh, kind of a prediction, you know, from the, from the investing public that, that things in the economy are improving. At least they're expecting sort of a decline in interest rate. I don't know if they necessarily see things in the economy improving as much as they see sort of the Fed slowing down or moving away from interest rate increases. Um, but, uh, I, I think, you know, what we've seen historically is that, you know, the stock market only goes down through sort of the first quarter of a recession and that the stock market over the the last three quarters of a recession is typically improving and increasing. And so one of the weird things about we talked a little about this morning, the news cycle and how quickly information has to be processed now is that. We spent much of last year with a recession prediction where the stock market pulled back, right? We saw the S&P down 19% last year. And so in many ways, that recession was already starting to get priced into the markets. It's not to say that we won't have volatility and additional pullback this year. That's certainly a possibility, but the market is trying to price things so quickly. We may have already started that process of pricing it into the markets. Um, but I, I certainly would expect, you know, more it's it's been pretty muted volatility to start the year, uh, even with the banking. If we look at this year uh, so far, year to date, there's only been two movements of greater than two percent up or down to start the year. If we look at last year, there's about 48 of those. So we're well be, behind pace for kind of volatility to start this year which is pretty surprising, but it's, you know, we keep expecting it to happen. We just haven't seen it quite yet.
Great. What else, what else can we answer for the group? Come on, Raccoon Group people, you're supposed to be queued up with questions for this kind of event. If you want to go back to it, Rob, we it was asked this morning. I think I hadn't uh, broached the subject because we somewhat answered it in more roundabout ways. But uh, a client asked this morning and a client asked in advance about all of the headwinds, geopolitical, potential wars, uh, potential recession, how to protect one's portfolio and whether one, you know, should consider um, not necessarily moving to cash, but protecting, you know, is it advisable to have a year to two years um, set aside of expenses? Great. Well, without getting too specific, because everyone's own portfolio situation is unique to themselves, I think, you know, we think there's a lot of opportunity. One of the one of the problems that the banking uh, industry faced is that they were too slow in raising their interest rate paid. And so we found a lot of alternatives to cash very quickly as people became nervous about the markets. They increased their deposits greatly uh, early last year. And then what we've seen is we've seen these alternatives when we're looking out in the market and we're seeing uh, CDs at levels that we haven't seen in many years, or you're seeing, uh, the two year treasury, you know, getting up to 5%. So there became a lot of alternatives to, to holding cash. And so certainly I think that when we look out there, the idea of, you know, everyone should have a reserve and everyone should have a reserve that is sufficient to maintain them for a certain amount of time. But there are a lot of good alternatives and opportunity in the market. And, you know, there's there's always investing uncertainty, and we think that, you know, with the right allocation for each person that there's, you know, there's an opportunity to remain invested. I have one other uh, Please, comment. Did, did, did anybody in your office see the Barron's article this week about the yield curve and uh, inflation? about that it may be predicting something other than most people usually say it's predicting. I read it, but uh, I don't really remember the basis of it. So I wondered if, if you just in general had any comments on the, the, the current status of yield, cur- the yield uh, curve, the, the differential between the, the short and the long-term rates and uh and inflation as a as some kind of predictor. In other words, explain to everyone the yield curve just means what what you can earn in a in a thirty day CD or Treasury versus a, a a five or a ten year one. And when you can earn more interest on a short term deposit than a long term deposit, that's that's a sign of sort of uncertainty and ill ill ease that that um it's typically it's a it's a it's a harbinger of recession but that hasn't been the case for the last year when and it's um uh 
people uh, want higher higher earnings. They're you know if if you only as Kyle was saying, I think that if you if you can get four and a half percent for three years or or five years, that may be better than taking five percent for ninety days because you're locking in the higher rate. So I don't I don't know whether we see it as a predictive. Uh, sign that there is an inverted yield curve, just that um, uh, that the government needs money, and so they have to pay a high. I mean, that the, it's the investor demand is what sets the yield curve, right? And so um, they need to attract money in the short term. Yeah, um, they need to. They're attracting money in the short term, but then they have fewer buyers, borrowers for longer term debt because of the uncertainty. Um, you know, something. Something we saw just before the the banking crisis occurred was that uh, we had long had a pretty short inverted yield curve. So we had basically almost flat from six months to one year, and then we started to decline after one year. Uh, just before the banking crisis, that actually stretched out beyond two years. So we saw that both the one-year and also the five-year uh, yielding around five percent, the one year and two years, excuse me, the one year and two year yielding right around 5%. And so we saw actually a flattening of that yield curve versus the inversion. Now, since the banking crisis occurred, we had the large drop in the two year and subsequent years, which made that kind of steep inversion of the curve, uh, which basically people became less confident about the future because of the banking crisis. And so they started to say, Oh, I only want short-term debt and I want long-term debt less. And so that's where you start to see that adjustment in the prices. And, um, certainly people, it kind of refreshed everyone's minds going back to the recession question of saying, like, when do we expect a recession to occur? And when do we expect interest rates to start to decline again? And basically the market is sort of predicting back out into that, you know, that two-year, two-year zone. Good. Well, we've got a, we've got about five minutes left of open conversation here, so uh, we welcome any additional questions that someone might have at this point. Well, what do you think about gold and Bitcoin? Man, well, uh, pretty fascinating. Uh, I mean, gold has really greatly benefited from the declining U.S. dollar this year. Uh, so gold is up about 10% this year. Um, you know, it, its value improves when the U.S. dollar weakens. Um, so we have seen that, but we've also seen people with more uncertainty in the market kind of purchasing gold again and moving towards gold. Uh, trades right around $2,000 an ounce right now. Uh, now, Bitcoin, uh, if you're in the prediction business, you'd, you'd want to follow Rob on, on, and his Bitcoin weekly posts he puts up in his blog. Um, no, but no, <laughs> no one should follow my blog. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know, Bitcoin has been pretty fascinating. So we've seen Bitcoin, I think, go from, I think, around 16,000 to all the way up to, to 29,000 this year. I think it was a move around 70 plus percent, uh, that we've seen, seen Bitcoin change this year. And, uh, 
quietly though, which is which is probably the best case for Bitcoin because typically when we've seen runups in Bitcoin, it's been very fad based, where it has a lot of momentum and excitement behind it. Uh, but this year we've had tons of bad news related to cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin with all the uncertainty in the world has really kind of formed its own rally and, and done it quietly, which I think is, is a positive for Bitcoin. I, I do too. There's a very big difference between Bitcoin and the other so-called cryptocurrencies. Bitcoin is the one that has this worldwide network of self-proving uh, 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 verification and authentication. Um, the other cryptocurrencies, which, which are more fungible, Bitcoin is not fungible easily. It's, it, it's not easily used and it, it shouldn't be con- confused with uh, electronic currency, which, which is likely going to take place, uh, uh, in many of the Western and, and developed nations. Um, uh, uh, so Bitcoin is, is much more like gold and, and, uh, I don't know what the other cryptocurrencies are like, uh, um, but when gold goes up, when there's uncertainty in the, in the long-term value, uh, the purchasing power of, of a central bank issued currency or bank backed currency, and so that's what Bitcoin is just an alternative, just like gold. Gold is not fungible. You can't go and take a piece of gold to the grocery store and get change for it. it you, people don't ver- know how to verify it. They don't, they, they don't know how to, you know, value it at any one point in time. So, um, the, and, and we don't, you know, it's not a major part of anyone's portfolio. It's just an interesting alternative store of value is how I think of it. And uh, 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 Kyle and I started following it because of a friend of his, I, I don't know, five years ago, came or talked to us about it. And um, uh, it's a it, it's an interesting concept. There's decentralized, anonymous, but uh, but verifiable um, uh, uh, store of value. So um, yeah. Uh, what about the? Oh, well, we're almost out of time, so I, w- I won't go off on my other questions about energy. Um, uh, but energy is also a very interesting sort of store of value topic when you see the uh, the, the the Mid Eastern oil producers have very much charted an independent course from the U.S. Uh, the Saudis. Um, there, there's a very fractured. It's no longer a block of nations. Some of them are friendly. Uh, some of them are have good relations, economic relations with the U.S. and with Israel. Some of them don't. Um, and, uh, uh, it, you know, oil and, and, and natural gas are really one of the U.S.'s great natural resource strengths. Uh, 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 um, and uh, uh, not necessarily at the moment, but in in the long term. So, um, so we we feel very positive about the U.S.'s prognosis uh, domestically for for energy independence, for um, you know the continued entrepreneurial opportunity for people, um, uh, and you know 
if uh, it's in in spite of our politicians, we we have a, an optimistic, a long term view of uh, for the market. So we think it's important to sort of end our talk on that on that uh, sort of long term optimistic note. Great. Well, thank you everyone for joining us today and. Uh... You should have just received our email for our next presentation on uh, Europe and Ukraine. It was a very nice time in Contessa. She planned it exactly that way, I know. And so uh, we hope you all can join us on May 4th for that. But really, there's Kyle. Anyway, I'll just finish up what Kyle's saying, which is adieu, adieu, adieu. Thanks for joining us and see you soon. The Raccoon Group is comprised of investment professionals registered with Hightower Advisors LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Some investment professionals may also be registered with Hightower Securities LLC, member FINRA, and SIPC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors LLC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is neither indicative nor a guarantee of future results. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data or other information referenced herein is from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other data or information contained in this presentation is provided as general market commentary and does not constitute investment advice. The Raccoon Group and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates make no representations or warranties expressed or implied as to the accuracy or completeness of the information or for statements or errors or omissions or results obtained from the use of this information. The Raccoon Group and Hightower Advisors LLC assume no liability for any action made or taken in reliance on or relating in any way to this information. The information is provided as of the date referenced in this document. Such data and other information are subject to change without notice. This podcast was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed herein are solely those of the author, do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates.